Welcome to the Big Badge Energy Podcast, where we serve up candid conversations that matter to women about women. I'm joined by my co-host Chess, and together we explore the reality, frustrations, and success stories of females in the 21st century. Today we're speaking to Sharon Gafka, who you may know from watching the extremely popular TV series Love Island, but she's so much more than a reality show contestant, and that is exactly what we wanted to focus on in this episode. Yeah, she was a civil servant before entering the Love Island Villa, responsible for legislation change, helping women's equality, and she's also an ambassador for Young Women's Trust. Yeah, Sharon was just super lovely to chat to. She's very humble, a a very down-to-earth woman. You know, I was uh, particularly blown away by how she's used her platform to not only inspire change, but to actually put some action into making this world a better place for women in, in so many ways. But you'll hear about that very shortly. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So my lovely Chess. Hi, babe. Hi, babe. It's been a while. <laughs> it's been a while. I know there's so much to tell you. Like we always are texting. Guys, we're always texting each other about fabulous ideas for the podcast obviously and we get very excited but then we forget that we're really good friends and we actually have to like talk to each other so yeah no um, business talk personal life chat I know but like real quick I'm I'm fine I'm surviving although today I went to get my booster shot my um yeah uh, at the doctor and um, I didn't particularly want to see the needle because I was just a bit like oh I've had too many you know procedures lately and and so as soon as he got the syringe out of like the packet I'm like okay I'm looking away I'm looking away so I look like to the right and <laughs> I kind of like fling my left arm out in his direction thinking like I'm just giving him my arm. But he yeah. was like sat really close to me and I didn't see it. And I literally punched him in the crotch. Oh no. And I was like, I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and my oh like my arm gosh. was like right, like in his, you know, like obviously I, it sounds like I'm like assaulting this now, but I'm like really not. It was a mistake. And as soon as I realized, I, I just like was like really stiff and I pulled it away and he was like, likes your arm and I was like I'm so sorry okay did he buckle over did he did he contain himself no he was completely fine and I was like I was like so embarrassed and he was so professional he was just like Relax your arm. And I was just oh like, my I'm, so sorry, I'm so sorry. Anyway, he just like gave me the thing and I was like trying to make small talk. You know, like, oh okay, um yeah. And he was just like, uh yeah, okay, bye. He like didn't even want to acknowledge what happened. He didn't. It was, no, it was so no. bad. Oh and my gosh. It was, it was so funny, but it was so embarrassing. I always do stuff like this. Like I try and be you know, as normal as possible, but I am this awkward human being on this planet, I swear. Oh, we all have our our moments, our moments. Um, How about you, babes? Yeah, what, what's been going on with me? Oh, I, um, uh, so this kind of ties into off the back of our, our chat um, with our previous episode when we were talking about parenting. So oh. I... <laughs> took on the task for a weekend of watching my three very lovely nieces and uh the dog and the kitten and (laughs) oh my god was it ever the most full-on 
fucking thing ever. I mean, I adore them. It was great, right? But I took them um, up north, two hours uh, north of the city to our cottage where we go skiing. And they're in ski lessons and they all have different schedules and two have races. So I essentially played Uber driver the whole weekend and and chef, which was, it was fine. It was nice. You know, it gave us an opportunity to like connect and have some really fun chats that probably wouldn't have had otherwise. But it's like, I get them all to bed, right? And then the dog and the kitten love just chasing each other throughout the place at all hours. So you have to separate them. So... The first night I put the dog, he, he's got kind of separation anxiety issues. So I have him in bed with me, but anyone like I am the lightest sleeper, right? So yeah. night two, I'm like, no, 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 we're not doing that again. You can, you, I'll bring the kitten into my room and you can stay outside. The dog's crying. The kitten's attacking my hand. I just, I can't win. I try to put the kitten in my niece's room. They're like, nope, she's keeping us up. So I didn't get anyways, long story short, like, so much mad respect to my brother and sister-in-law and to all parents out there who 100%. can manage a little soccer team have, like this. No, I, like, and that was like, n- like no offense to you, but like obviously it was two days and I can't even imagine doing two hours, but they do it like every day of their lives. Guys, oh. you parents, I mean, I mean, kudos. Like, we're, we're, Such kudos. Honestly. Yeah. But okay, <laughs> I mean, I how could how can you forget but obviously yeah. you're an amazing you're an amazing cook so I'm sure you made them such lovely meals and desserts oh, and thanks, things babe. we did and, some pizzas um, and, and cookies but as a result uh, today um as you can see guys I was just scrambling to find a working pair of headphones because my niece took my airpods with her dun, and dun, dun. um I am using a pair of those really crappy airline headphones and can (laughs) barely hear you right now but we'll make it through we'll make it through I'm here but yes okay so we are gonna jump right into this uh, chat with Sharon I hope you guys enjoy this and let us know what you think via our DMs hi Sharon welcome to the big vag energy podcast hi thank you guys so much for having me Hi, how are you today? I'm good. Do you know what? I feel like I'm ready for the weekend already, even though it's just Tuesday. I feel like this week has been going on for forever, but it might just be me. So no, no. how's everyone else? (laughs) I'm like you. I just came like back from holiday and I literally just told my boyfriend, I was like, you know, when you come back from holiday and you need another holiday, that's me like right now. So I'm with you. Well, I wish I'd had the whole first holiday, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I know I need a holiday. I was just saying to Chess how I'm still recovering from babysitting my three nieces and a dog and Ooh, a five things, five live things, and it was super full on. But everyone made it out alive, so that's good. <laughs> that's a small win. I'll take that. Yeah, exactly. But I am absolutely shattered. <laughs> um, so Sharon, we're obviously so um gassed, like so shook to have you on here. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, and we've got uh, quite a few questions that we're really excited about, and we've uh, asked our listeners to uh, um send in some questions as well. So we're gonna begin with you've been leading a campaign to increase awareness on the dangers of drink spiking after you yourself were a victim spiking levels have been increasing in the UK to the point of being 
called an epidemic and spiking through injection is now especially prevalent, which is horrible. Um, For our listeners who are not familiar with your experience, can you share with us what happened? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, so for me, my my last, most recent experience, you know, I've said it's not the first time that I've been spiked, and you know, I wouldn't put any money on it being the last time I ever get spiked. But you know, my most recent experience, probably the scariest one for me, and I was in a restaurant with, you know, a group of my closest friends just after the first lockdown in the UK, and um, we were just celebrating, you know, coming out of lockdown. It was the first time we were allowed to see each other in public. The first time we got to see each other for months. Loads of us were frontline workers. So we'd really been going at it and just wanted to like let our hair down a little bit. Um, and it was, you know, it was really pleasant. It was really nice, really enjoyable. And then it kind of went very downhill very quickly. So for me personally, like I remember sitting at the table outside in a courtyard having a glass of wine with my friends and the next minute I've woken up in hospital and I've no idea how I've gotten there. Um, you know, I was very anxious. I had like, you know, I remember medical staff asking me what my name was, if I knew where I was, like anything like that. And I ta- I couldn't say anything. I couldn't even read the time on the clock that was like, Whoa. I remember facing above my bed, like my eyes were just so um, skewed. If, like, I couldn't see anything um and I remember being so like dazed that I turned around to the nurse and was like oh the lights in the ceiling look really pretty and she kept telling me what hospital I was in I had no idea I couldn't repeat it back to her um and it wasn't it didn't really hit me until I got home like one of my friends took me home in an uber and turned around to me and said look I think I think you've been spiked she's had to stay with me in my flat for the the rest of the night and in the morning until I like eventually went back to work but you know I was pretty much out of it to be honest that's such a terrifying situation to be in did the paramedics or anyone at the hospital think you had been spiked did they suggest that that was a possibility at all no so um actually the paramedics when they arrived didn't really think that I'd have been spiked at all it never really crossed their mind as a possibility the first instance was that they'd told my friends that I drank too much and that I was ready to just go home and sleep it off um yeah and I you know I think I don't I obviously I don't they were two male paramedics I don't know if it would have been different if there was a female paramedic with the male with a male paramedic or two female paramedics but you know one of my friends that was there my best friend is a doctor she knows my medical history back to front she's known me since I was 18 years old like I'm 26 now I was 24 at the time so you know if anyone's going to know me it's her um, you know, I have what I have a peanut allergy and it's definitely not an anaphylactic shock of any kind. So she said, look, I, I refuse to let you take her home. Um, yeah. You're taking her to the hospital. And they did. And I woke up and, you know, I, I think I still have photos of my arms where I'd been had so many fluids and drips put into my body that I was covered in bruises on both arms. So obviously, if you felt like it, I needed to have this amount of drips and needles and and things put into my body, then it's obviously not just alcohol. Wow. And did you go back after and report it? What what was that process like, following your friends, suggesting that that was what she thought had happened to you? And, and thank goodness she was there and, and happens to be a doctor. Yeah, definitely. I think so, you know, a lot of my, I, I had a lot of friends that would like working in like music industries and things like that. So, you know, they I feel like they've been exposed to what it looks like on numerous occasions just because of like the types of venues and things they work at. And, um, you know, 
I felt super anxious for like the first whole week afterwards. I didn't really know what I was supposed to feel, who I could talk to about it. Um, like I remember the first time I ordered a takeaway after it, I got, I jumped at the fact that somebody knocked on my door. So, um, you know, I, I worked from home for that week. I didn't leave. I didn't want to speak to anyone. And I, I didn't report it to the police one, because I felt like if paramedics didn't believe me, then why, how is a police officer going to believe me? And I don't have any proof. Like it's my word against anyone else's. And I think that's one of the things when it comes to like violence in this kind of way towards people that it's, just, it's literally one word against the other and there's not a lot anyone can do about it. So I, I, you know, I wasn't sure if I wanted to relive that experience just, just to be told there's nothing we can do and we don't even know if we can believe you. And you're not alone in that. There is a survey that was done by the Alcohol Education Trust that showed that only 8% of people spiked reported to police or medic. So following your experience, what advice would you give to women who find themselves in a situation where they think they've been spiked or their friend has been spiked? And what are the steps that they should be taking or the resources that they should be referring to? Yeah, I think um, it's really hard because I think with women, we are brought up to have these things ingrained into us that we don't leave drinks alone on a night out or we don't go home on our own on after a night out. And I think, unfortunately, at the current moment in time, that's pretty much the only advice we really can give until somebody does something more substantial about it. You know, I was really fortunate that, and I've seen it in comments on social media that, you know, I'm so lucky because I have friends that genuinely care and genuinely know about me as a person to know that I was missing after 10 minutes whereas you know if your friends aren't always like that are they gonna have known like how if my friends weren't like that how long would I have been there before somebody found me um so and yeah for me it's always it's the same advice like you know just make sure that your friends are okay just don't really lose each other on a night out but I'm trying to work with organizations like the police and government to try and build something more substantial and trying to figure out how we can train establishments to be able to deal with it properly um I don't know if a lot of people know but obviously in my particular instance we knew which drink it was um, had we known that we could have taken that drink and saved it and had it tested because it lasts longer in the glass than it does in my system, then that's evidence. So my friend would have taken that glass. Um, I didn't know that. None of them knew that. They were in their 30s. So, you know, how many other people know that's a viable option? But also, again, if you're on a... I had no idea. Yeah. I had no idea and I'm in my 30s. So it's good that you can give that insight to us. Yeah, definitely. So I think that's one of the little things that you can do. It's 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 crazy, um, and and both Alex and I have spoken about this as well. That um, we have to be on such high alert when we're out, right? So we can we can't just enjoy ourselves and you know be carefree, like because we, we want to go out and we want to let go, right? Um, you know, we need these color changing nail polishes and and, and things. Um, so it's it's just such a shame that this keeps happening, and it can happen anywhere, right? So you were out with friends at um, uh, a restaurant it, it doesn't only happen at nightclubs you know these really dingy places it could happen anywhere and to anyone at any age um, so what do you think is driving this rapid increase and what are the consequences for perpetrators right now as it stands because it really doesn't seem like there are many yeah I think um, 
for, yeah I think it's one thing that I've noticed as well as I keep saying it was a restaurant and it's like a really horrible defense mechanism for myself that I'm justifying where I was as to why it shouldn't be allowed to happen but it shouldn't be allowed to happen in any scenario or situation um you know at the moment um perpetrators can be prosecuted up to 10 years in prison in the UK for being caught spiking somebody um and it's under the sexual offenses act and if even if their intention is to set cause sexual harm to the victim even if they do not actually com- like go through with the plans to sexually harm yeah. somebody they can still go intention. to prison for that yeah, yeah the in- as long as the intention is there but unfortunately you know i've i've done my own call for evidence to write my submission to the home affairs committee and things like that but i think that there's a massive gap in terms of legislation that spiking doesn't have its own legislative code and you know the variety of different reasons as to why perpetrators might have committed spiking in the first place like for me from what i've seen i've had anything from a 14 year old teenage girl to a 65 year old man They're all going to have a variety of different reasons as to why they were spiked. And I think it's very naive for people just to assume it's a date rape drug for the intent of sexual harm. The 14 year old girl turned around to me and said that she was spiked with a pharmaceutical drug that you can buy in a pharmacy, like an Imodium, because somebody at her school thought it was funny. Um, Yeah. And like, you know, if you went to hospital, it wouldn't come up in a toxicology report. Is this protected under under the spiking legislation? Not really. But, you know. If you're stopping somebody's bodily functions from taking place, you can cause serious harm to them. So there's no real, real repercussions for that. And you know, again, it's some some people have told me they've been spiked because they wanted the perpetrator wanted to lower their inhibitions to steal from them to rob them. But then they probably get done under robbery if they got caught. But would they get done under spiking? Probably not. So there's just a lot of different gaps in terms of reasons why people are spiked and i think people always assume it's date rape drug for sexual harm right you touched on the fact that there was a call to evidence that home affairs released around the prevalence of spiking and its victims i think in january what were the results of these findings and why do you think from my understanding there was unawareness that this was taking place by female organizations I think, um, I mean, I'm not personally sure about the entirety of the committee's findings as of yet, because they were taking verbal um, statements as well as like written submissions. Um, And I know that they did a survey, but because I believe that the survey had so many submissions, they extended the deadline of the survey by another like three weeks or something like that. So they were clearly inundated with people coming forward saying this has happened to me and I do think that a lot of organizations reaching out a lot of people standing like people in the public eye standing up and saying it's happened to me too it's encouraged more people to come forward and say something you know off my social media alone I had 1500 people come to me whoa so you know if 1500 people came to me off of my social media out of all of these other people's social media how many things that they get coming to them so i'm not i'm not completely sure of the complete findings but i think where the lack of awareness is i do think that maybe because our parliamentarians don't fully represent society as a whole maybe Mm. things get swept under the carpet and now it's only because people are coming forward and saying these things or that spiking you know spiking by injection is now taking place at they feel like they have no choice but to listen to it. Um, you know, spiking's not a new thing. It's been happening for ages. It's just because now the parliamentarians and, pe- and organisations are being forced to listen to it as opposed to being able yeah. to sweep it under the carpet. 
And you went as far as meeting with your local MP, David Johnston, is it? Yes, correct. Can you talk us through what you were seeking to change in Parliament? And can you update us on what the outcome was? Because I know that was just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, so I went to David kind of with what I, like, my proposals, what we should the parliamentarians can do in order to go forward when it comes to spiking. I'm aware that it's such a big topic that it needs a bit more of a 360 approach. It's not just government that needs to do something. It it takes a lot of other people's work as well. But for me, I think that there's massive gaps in terms of education. You know, I mean, David Johnson and other MPs probably don't have the same exposure to social media as I do. But on TikTok, for example, there was one particular video I did reacting to a female police officer stopping and searching two young men who had been overheard conspiring to spike somebody. Um, And I got a plethora of comments saying that I'd have no sense of humour, I don't have to take a joke, I should shut up, it's funny, calm down, like you don't know what it's like to be stopped and searched. I've been stopped and searched. You know, I've been stopped and breathalyzed when I'm taking picking someone up from a party. I know what it feels like when you're innocent, but at the same time, I know I'm innocent. And like, you know, if something as as horrible and violent as spiking is taking place, they have every right to stop and search you. Hundred percent. And the fact that you find it funny says a lot to me about the maturity of not not just young men, but particularly young men on social media. Says a lot to me, and I think that's why it's probably becoming worse. There is no education. Like I, I mean, I was in school 10 years ago and my sex education was how to put a condom on a blue willy (laughs) and you know sexes don't use whatever lube with whatever condom and that was pretty much it there was no conversation about consent there was no conversation about spiking in phse and drugs education there was like none of this and i think that massively contributes to young people's attitudes towards a topic like this like i've had people send me nasty comments calling me a slapper calling me a slag telling me I was begging for it I was might as well have been walking around with a drink begging a man to put a pill in my drink and take me and all these things yeah and like that's a it's an attitude thing that we can you know it's an attitude thing that's learned and so we can unlearn it and I think you know it needs to be more proactive in that sense we can't just deal with victims after they've been spiked is what we can do to minimize spiking or to make people more aware of it so I think that was one of the most important things I said to him and I said that there needs to be more of a bridge between the NHS and paramedics and things and the police because there is no bridge you know like had I told I turned around to the paramedics and said you know if my friends had turned around to the paramedics and said I think she'd been spiked I'm not expecting the NHS to all of a sudden pull out this massive toxicology resource because it's unviable but no police officer reached out to me even though my friends were in the A&E waiting room saying she's been spiked I want to know what you've done with her but no one reached out to me and there might there should be some kind of bridge somewhere where victims feel like they're being heard and they're being supported, even if the NHS provide a leaflet with like helplines or things that you can expect to feel after, just anything as small as that. And I think that those are a couple of the things I suggested to David. So did David support you? Did how did how to go? Yeah, so David does support me. I've asked him to write four letters to his senior colleagues in like the Department for Education, the Ministry of Justice, the Home Office. Um and the Department of Health to be able to reach out to those particular organisations and for to start that engagement process where, you know, when I worked in the Ministry of Justice, I looked up to women like Gina Martin, who I'd briefly got to work with on things like the upskirting bill. And, you know, she took something that was not even illegal at the time to and drove a massive campaign behind it. So I take massive inspiration from her to be able to get spiking to be made into its own piece of legislation and protect victims, not just young women. It's great to hear that David is supporting you. Um, You touched on it before about education. That's something that 
Chess and I have spoken about before in this podcast with our Violence Against Women episode. And I, I love how you said attitudes can be unlearned. But going back um, to what you were saying before, everything that I've learned in terms of taking care of myself to avoid these situations is something that I've had to figure out on my own or that my parents have had to educate me on. But I wasn't necessarily taught how it feels to be spiked, what that situation can look like, um, and just having that kind of additional insight that you've provided from your experience. And and on the flip side, I, I don't think spiking from the perspective of the individual, I guess the perpetrator doing the action, was taught uh, either in terms of, I guess, why that's wrong or even how to be an ally, an ally um, in these situations and maybe even just respect all around, <laughs> which is super, super important. But I don't know, a lot of this I think should be taught in school, in my opinion, and taught at a young age, not just kind of at that, let's say, college, university level. And, yeah. and and I completely agree with Alex, you know, there's no point spending the rest of our days and the rest of humanity scaremongering girls and saying, hey, you know, don't do this and don't wear this and cover your drink with your hand and take your drink to the toilet, blah, blah, blah. So obviously the perspective ne- perspective needs to be changed and do you ha- in your view, because you've had a lot of time to think about it, how how are we going to do this? I think it's, I think it's, when it comes to educating young men, I think it's not just going to be schools that have to step up to this. I think it's parental um, responsibility as well. You know, Mm. I, like, I have nothing bad to say about my parents whatsoever. They were amazing. But I always remember growing up being told I shouldn't dress a certain way. I shouldn't go out. Whereas nobody would ever turn around to my brother and said, you shouldn't treat a woman like this. You shouldn't do this. Like, if a woman Mm. feels uncomfortable, you need to stop like all these other things like it's always on the, the onus is always on the woman to be able to do something to stop it from happening but there's never a conversation with the young men saying that you know this is what you can do like yesterday I was walking my dog and a guy crossed the road because he, walk, he was walking directly behind me he crossed the road and walked the same direction but on the opposite side to make me feel more oh, comfortable so nice it was so lovely and it was a, such a small gesture that made me feel a lot more comfortable and like you know how many guys are willing to do that or know that they should do that or we can like do it that? We like yeah. that, man. Thank you, man. Thank you, whoever you yeah. are. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's just such a small thing. And I think that, again, it's like just opening those conversations to slightly change attitudes or to make people aware as to why they feel, like, why I felt a certain way about certain things is a, is a massive way to go. And I know there's always debates about how far sex education should go. But, like, you know, like Alex said, a lot of the things you've learned yourself as a woman, you had to, well, you had to learn yourself. And because these open conversations aren't necessarily happening people are turning to things like pornography to learn about sex you know as grown women we know that that's not always what loving relationships look like that's not what sex should really be looking like especially towards young women but if that's how they're learning because no one's having these conversations with them then that has bigger complications down the line absolutely absolutely so changing the topic uh 
I want to ask you about your time on Love Island, which for anyone tuning in that doesn't know, but I feel like everyone should know, (laughs) is a very popular dating reality show um, that's highly successful and an influential series in the UK that has spinoffs globally. And it was um, one of the network ITV2's most watched show in the network's history in, in 2020, I think, at one point. So with respect to your experience on the show, you've spoken out about a lack of diversity and, and representation. And you were quoted saying boys didn't fancy Asian girls. So I'm just curious, what was the application process like for the show? Because I want to know, did they did they ask you about your dating preferences and what you were looking for? You know, you would think then if they did ask you, they would realize, okay, these particular men and these particular women are open to a diverse range of people, right? Yeah, I um, do you know what? I've I've thought about that a lot, really. Um, again, like I've I keep saying, it's never at the fault of the cast members, but because Love Island is such an influential show, I feel like people may say anything just to get on the show. So, like, I have been asked all the time, like, what is my type? And you know, if you look at people I've dated, they they all look different. Like, there's there's very similar similarities between all of them. Um, so you know, when I say I'm open to dating anyone as long as there's a connection. I genuinely do mean that. But I think that maybe for some of the other contestants, they don't mean that, but maybe they said that during their... To get on. Yeah, to get on the show. Um, Because it brings so... Like, anybody would be lying if they said that they didn't go on the show for some kind of opportunity or some kind of experience. So maybe that there is, like, that element of maybe twisting the truth to be able to get onto the show. I don't know how much research producers put into people's like prior dating history before they go on the show because I don't really think that a lot of my exes were spoken about in depth um so I think that maybe it's it's one of those things where people have potentially twisted the truth just to be on the show and then therefore like that diversity thing kind of gets left behind a little bit right and um of course we know that these shows are heavily edited and the important conversations get cut which is I know something that you know was really important that you brought up after you left the show you've had some discussions around what it's like to be biracial in a modern dating world and exploring your sexual sexuality it's a shame these things got left out because this is kind of what we all need to hear these open conversations like we were saying before can you talk to us about these conversations that you had and those particular challenges you faced once on on the show and off the show afterwards yeah I think do you know what a lot of people have oh, a lot of my critics have said to me that the reasons why they got cut is because nobody watches Love Island to be PC they all watch Love Island because they want it to be dramatic and entertaining and it's like well you know having these conversations don't always have to be dry in whatever sense that they they think it is I remember you know the conversations about dating as a biracial woman or like when Kaz took part in that conversation as a black woman they weren't necessarily like they weren't I mean it was basically the truth and I turned around and said that things that people have called me in the past you know I've always been I always get asked on hinge if I'm a banana which is the equivalent of asking a black person if they're a coconut or a Maltese oh my Um, god I'm sorry yeah, so I remember mentioning that on the show, say, turn around to the boys and be like, yeah, I've been asked if I'm a banana multiple times. Um, 
And I didn't know what it meant for ages. And I don't think it was on Urban Dictionary, which makes me sound really old. But I remember feeling really confused. I was like, what is that apart from a piece of fruit? And someone, a guy explained it to me. And I said, so what makes you think that's okay to say that? And he said, oh, well, my Asian friends use it. I was like, yes, but I have black friends that you say the N-word. Does it make it okay for me to say that? No. Um, You know, so there was like those kinds of conversations where I was just very open about how crappy it can be on particular dating apps as a biracial woman like that over fetishization like people I've had people say to me oh well you know I don't normally date Asian girls because you're a bit they're normally like ironing boards but you're you're a bit different and I was like well that's not very complimentary so rude. yeah I these are not dry conversations yeah I'm sorry like yeah. these should be shown um yeah <laughs> so they're the things that kind of got cut in terms of um race I mean in terms of like sexuality I think you know there was the first challenge I think it was called horny devils where I'd basically admitted to having sexual relations with a woman um people kind of took that as like I I think quote unquote from TikTok as a pick me girl that wanted to please men by getting involved with other women well obviously that's not (laughs) what happened um so yeah I think that like you know, Faye turned around to me. She was like, I just want to ask you, like, she just turned around to me randomly and said, I want to ask you, are you bisexual? And I was like, oh, you know, I've never really put a label on it. Like, I think Faye was the first person in my life that's actually made me sit down and think about it. And I was like, well, I guess I am. Like, you know, I've never dated a woman. Does that still make me bisexual? But like, I would be open to dating a woman. And if I met the right woman, I would. So I guess that does. Like, so many kind of questions and things that were a bit left out. I don't think they were like boring conversations or it wasn't like me doing the massive can-can down the garden saying that I'm bisexual like it was just a genuinely open conversation and I think yeah I think like a lot of things that I said or like that did get aired didn't make sense because of things that I said that didn't get aired so it was a bit of a bit of a weird one for me I think I I would have watched the show for that conversation like I don't like sorry and I think so many people could relate to that as well, 100%. which would be really great for them seeing those conversations and having that representation on TV. And maybe they're going through something similar and haven't spoken about it. But when you have those conversations aired on TV, it can be really helpful for a lot of people. Yeah. I think people forget that reality TV should reflect reality just as much as it reflects <laughs> drama. Absolutely. Like, it's kind of the point. <laughs> yeah, 100%. But so you've mentioned how you've had quite an influx of criticism off the back of that show. How how has that been? Because to go onto the show, I would think, like, I admire you. And I think it takes a lot of confidence and bravery to put yourself out there on television. And you get quite a big falling off the back of that. So how do you deal with tuning out the noise of your critics? Yeah, I would say I'd be lying if the first few months it was impossible to tune out critics, especially when you leave and the show's still going on. Um, People very much cling on to something you may or may not have said, um, regardless of the context it was put in. And I think that I I took it quite personal that I felt a lot of people were upset about some of the things I said, regardless of what context I said it in and how it was shown. Um, I think it's weird because people think they know you. 
So I think that's the hardest part because they, they, they believe they know you, they know your name, they've seen your TV persona, but they don't know you as a person. And I think that was the hardest part for me because maybe I am a bit of an empath or a bit of a people pleaser where I don't like to feel like I've upset other people. So yeah, I'd be lying if I said the first few months didn't weren't really difficult. Um, in terms now, um, I mean, I still get the odd stupid comments about my appearance, but at this point, I, I don't care. You know, I yeah, I keep telling myself this and it's something that I speak about in like CBT and therapy as part of my like welfare package from Love Island is that I have to remember the people that sit there on the internet and say these things about somebody are unhappy with their own life. Like no happy person sits there and makes comments about somebody else's appearance. You know, if you think it, you think it like I'm not going to stop how you think, but to say it to somebody as if I'm not a person and I don't deserve to have my feelings taken into consideration is quite hurtful. But then again, as well, it's the same, like I have one particular trial. I refuse to block him because I think <laughs> people should see what he's like as a person. I have one particular trial that comments on all my pictures on Instagram saying, don't get spiked. You look like you've been spiked in this photo. Make sure you cover your uh. drink. And I refuse to block him out of the pure fact, if I block him, I'm protecting him. Can I just, can I just say, right. We like this is what I'm getting from where you say hurt people hurt people. Yeah, hundred percent. Right? So I mean, can I just say you are absolutely beautiful. I was like watching YouTube videos and being like, oh my god, her hair, oh my god, I'm like <laughs> so amazing. Um, so yeah, I hope I hope you know you do have that inner voice that does win and does tell you that you you are absolutely stunning and amazing, and um, it's a, it's just obviously it's a shame. There's not a lot we can do about it, but you're doing the right thing and kind of following on from this it would seem that the most desirable thing for a show contestant like you would be to be the country's sweetheart and the, like the most loved one you know everyone kind of but you stuck to your guns and persisted to be yourself even though that may not have been taken as well as you'd hoped because you know we know what happened and I really admire that um you stuck to your guns and you just really were yourself instead of pandering to the show and the public. Although it must have been hard. So how and why did you choose the harder path? So why did you really just make sure you did what you, what you set out <laughs> to do and be yourself? Um, I think... This is the one thing about being yourself is that, well, coming off a show like Love Island and going into like this route, this new industry and this new realm of what whatever path you decide is it's a 24 hour job. There is no way of switching off. You know, when I close when I finish this podcast, I'm still doing my job like and when I go out in the street with my family, if I go to Sainsbury's, it's still my job at the end of the day. Um, so there is no way of turning it off. And when you do something that is not 100 percent authentic to yourself, you are making your 24 hours 10 times harder for yourself than it already is. And, you know, that I will admit there are times when I've sat there and I've gone, well, you know, I'm trying to do something important. I'm trying to do something great. But why is this not happening for me? Why is this happening for somebody else? And I do sit there and I do think that. But, you know, I have never made life easy for myself. I think if you look at my career background, I have never chose the easy path because I think that the easy path is not necessarily the most rewarding. And, you know, for every critic I have, I have 10 young women telling me that they look in, they see themselves in me or that I've made themselves, I've made them feel better about themselves. Or, you know, girls message me when they get offers from universities or when they got a job offer and they're like, you know, you've made me feel more confident. And like every critic I have, I have at least five girls that say that. 
and that is that is worth it to me a hundred percent and I would never change that so yeah it doesn't take as well as I'd like I open myself up to a lot more criticism than being the national sweetheart but at the same time it makes it easier for me to be myself amazing what advice or what would you say to these young women and girls that look up to you and see you leveraging your platform for good and bettering our world I always say to you know to to these girls that you know having the path that I've taken good things don't come straight away you're you're in it for the long game and you have to remember that and you have to remember why you started doing what you did you know I went into politics because I wanted to be part of something that was bigger than myself and so I used to have days where I'd sit there and be like, why on earth am I doing this? And I have to remember that I'm doing this for a different purpose. Um, so you have to remember what your purpose is and what your drive is and why you enjoy it and why you're there in the first place. And remember that all the good things, like if everything good came now, you'd have nothing good to look forward to later down the line. So when all these girls say these things to me, I'm like, just hold on. I, and it's hard now, but you remember you've done the hard bit and the good bit will come eventually once you've overcome these other things so for me it's just to stick to your guns and remember why you're doing what you're doing that's great advice yeah great advice but also Alex and I find it so important when I'm just gonna go Rowan just back a bit (laughs) um uh when when, that you just openly admitted and and um spoke about going through CBT and therapy which I have done as well and I'm telling you I needed that CBT so bad and I'm still using it to this day even though my course is finished so I just wanted to say I really appreciate you normalizing that um and wondered maybe if you can talk to us about like maybe what um uh instigated your need or or desire to start it maybe yeah I think you know people always assume that being strong means that you don't need help from anyone um I'm fully aware as as my personality that I always think I know best and I can always do things by myself and that's not true um so you know that was something I needed to work on to develop myself into being a better person than I was yesterday so you know that kind of instigated that for me that I, I can't keep doing everything by myself and I can't keep putting myself last and putting everyone else before me so but also like normalizing it I think you know everyone just looks at me as if I'm this really tough person and and I'm unbreakable but you know everyone has a barrier and a breaking point but then who do I talk to about that where do I feel safe about talking about these things and I think that's where CBT really came in I remember like leaving the show being like I don't need it like in my own head like I don't need this like I'm fine I'm fine I'm fine and you know it gets to a point where you've said I'm fine so much that when you have a break to yourself you're not fine um so that you know and I think for me Christmas is not necessarily the most pleasant time of the year um I know a lot of people experience similar feelings like for me Christmas isn't isn't the one and I never really enjoy it so I think it brought out those emotions that you know like Christmas dies out, work dies down a little bit. So I had a bit more time to myself and I really sat there and I thought, I hate this time of year already. I know that my feeling hits rock bottom at Christmas every year. I want it to be different next year. So what what can I do to, for myself to make it different next year and the year going forward? So yeah, I think all of that combined really just kickstarted it off for me. So I really got into it in December. Um, and it's that long journey. I'm trying to train myself to be more positive about things and more positive about myself. Well, you really are. You're taking ownership to start with, which is the beginning of any great change. So I can I can tell you from where I'm standing, <laughs> sitting. <laughs> <it looks> great. 
<laughs> we commend you for sure. Uh, so some of our listeners sent across questions they have for you. So we'll share a couple. Uh, the first one we got is, what is it really like being in the public eye um, slash media spotlight? We glamorize it, but what is your life really like? Yeah, I, I mean, to say say glamorizing it is to say the least. Um, they do tell you before you go on the show, like, this is what it will be like, but you don't know how you're going to deal with it until you're actually in it. Like, there's so many things that people can tell you, but it's not, um, it's not doesn't matter until you're there and I think you know at the time I was like yeah it'd be fine it'd be fine whatever and then now I'm here I mean I don't consider myself famous so goodness knows what people like Beyonce and all that lot have to go through on a day-to-day basis but um I do think it is over glamorized I'm trying to remember like some experiences where I've not been particularly happy with how people have behaved towards me I do occasionally get tagged in TikToks of when I'm out and about and I think that's a bit weird um you know I got tagged in one recently um and it was me with my friends having a private dinner in Wagamama's and someone had recorded me without permission your consent yeah and it was it was I mean people are gonna say what do you expect you went on a really big tv show and that's fine but I think that's it's really strange for me um I think there was two particular incidences where I was genuinely really upset and I think that people so one of them I remember I just had my Invisalign started um, so my teeth were really sore. I went to Joe and the Juice to buy myself a sandwich. And because my teeth were sore, I might have looked a little bit on the weird side trying to eat it. Um, and a girl filmed me. She was filming me eating my sandwich. And I got Aww. really I got really upset that I put my sandwich in the bin and I just stared at her. And I just stood there and I was like, what, like, what do you want? Like, I'm a very, I feel like I'm an approachable person. If she came up to me and said, can I have a photo? 100% fine, whatever. If you stand there and record me trying to eat food, like that's weird, that's rude. Um, like, so that's I got a really fucking upset. sandwich. I just yeah. want to eat my fucking sandwich. And I just put it in the bin. If you've been to Joe and the Juice, it's a, not a cheap sandwich as well. So I was more it's upset. No, so I funny. Yeah, I got into my car and I was like, well, that's really upsetting because I've just thrown like a seven pound sandwich in the bin. <laughs> oh, um, <laughs> so, devastating. So that was really devastating. That's the most devastating bit. Yeah, I know. So I was like, why did I do that? I was really hungry as well. So that was really upsetting. But, um, yeah, that was a bit weird. I think the one thing that upset me the most was when I was in Paddington Tube Station and two girls, I was waiting for a tube, had my earphones in, I'd had a really long day. It was, and I felt like rubbish. Um, you know, I had lots of other things going on. Like I still have a personal life, regardless of where you're in the public eye or not. You still have family things going on, all this stuff. And two girls came up to me and I didn't like the way they came up to me. It was like they grabbed me from behind. Um, and obviously I'm, I'm a bit of a, I'm not an anxious person, but I, I am very jumpy. If you ever watch a horror film with me, I will jump at anything, even if it's like a cat walking across the screen. Um, so I kind of freaked out and I got really like startled. So I just froze a little bit and was kind of a bit cut off. And I just got onto the tube. I was like, look, I'm not, I'm not in the mood. Like, don't grab me like this in public because it's not nice. And I just got on the tube and I just tried to ignore it. I think about a week later, one of the girls sent me a really nasty message on Instagram saying that I was rude, I was stuck up, and I think I'm better than everyone. And I said, look, I'm really sorry that you felt like this about me. That's not how I wanted to come across at all. I said that I was having a bad day. And, you know, next time if you see me in public, just say something to me and we can get a photo. That's perfectly okay. And I said I was sorry. Um, And I would never want anyone to think that of me. But then she had a go at me for more for saying that. 
she said, well, you're in the public eye. I should be happy all of the time. Like I should be happy to see people all of the time. I'm not allowed to have a bad day. If she was me, she would have behaved like this. And it's like, you can say that because you're not me. You're not a robot. Like you're a person. And, you know, at that day, I found out that one of my family members was potentially terminally ill. So, you know, I wasn't going to delve into my personal stuff on the, on the side of the tube. With a random person who's grabbed you. Yeah, exactly. And scared you. You have no idea what's going on in someone's head. So for her to turn around and be like, well, actually, if I was you, I would have behaved like this. I think that for me is like, you know, people forget that I'm still a person. I still have private things going on in my life. And for her, for them to turn around and say that, I think that upset me the most because I would never want to come across as a horrible person. That no. must be really difficult. Do you feel like you have to be on it and are hyper aware of your surroundings more now? Are you able to relax when you're out and about? I imagine that's quite challenging. Um, I'm I'm definitely more hyper aware. I think it's ha- I think it's more upsetting that's happened to my mum as well, where she's very hyper aware of what's happening. So like, if I go to the shop with my mum she'll be like that girl's filming you that girl's talking about you this is like and like my family and my friends have become very hyper aware of it I try to shut it off otherwise I'll drive myself a bit crazy if I'm constantly thinking about it but I do feel like I'm not allowed to have an off day I always have to be happy or if I get caught in a weird way on photo in a photo like there was a photo in an article the other day the article was completely irrelevant to me but there was a photo of me getting into a car after a night out I had hair stuck in my gloss like any other woman and I was getting it out yeah like standard procedure I was getting it out a pap took a photo of me and it the caption was Sharon looking worse for wear after leaving an event oh Sharon I'm so so sorry babe like no one no one deserves this but I like I hope that it doesn't ever you know grind you down in that um but to say you know you do have a lot of people who look up to you and um we've got more questions here we've got um did you face some resistance or experience inequality whilst on your journey as a civil servant um I feel like maybe at times I did um it's a really hard one because I feel like a lot of the people I worked with made very big conscious efforts to make it as diverse as physically possible okay you know like one of the last teams I worked in before I went into the villa they were they were honestly so amazing like it was them that encouraged me to apply for the show in the first place like so you know they were like I consider them personal friends now they still message me all the time and I still message them um so you know for that particular team never faced a moment where I felt you know I was one of the youngest leaders in that team but I never felt that my age was taken into question at all at any given point that's really good yeah exactly and like I wish there were more I wish I'd worked in all teams that were like that or people could work in teams that were like that because it was like one of the best jobs I'd ever had um I do remember one particular um team that I'd worked in where I felt like because I was the only woman um and because I was substantially younger than my colleagues I was not taken as seriously as some of the other people sat around the table um you know and I think that one thing again with being being a civil servant is that you should be directly representative of the people you serve right you know I remember turning around to people in a meeting said well you know what does a group of what a table full of white middle-aged well-educated men know about outreaching to different cultures great question and nobody could answer my question but you know, I had a valid point. Um, 
yeah so again like you know if we're not diverse and how are we going to be able to do all these things for a diverse country and yeah I think maybe sometimes my age was was one of the biggest factors where people thought because I was young or because I like to wear makeup or dress a certain way that I'm not as serious about my career as anyone else wow well as we know age ain't nothing but a number so um okay one more that came through to us is has being on love island added an extra layer of complication to your dating life <laughs> oh no oh uh, every time someone asks you the dating life question i'm like oh i wish i could have avoided that one no it's fine um i um it's it's strange i remember when i first left the villa any boy that i was photographed with was a potential boyfriend right that was very strange to me like i'd get sent articles from my friends being like have you seen this and it'd be like sharon and so and so seen out like I remember one article it was like Sharon and Chug seen out kissing and I was like okay well if we were out seen kissing where's the photo <laughs> like where's the evidence there there wasn't one because it didn't happen like we were out having dinner as friends so but when I first left the villa it was very very strange um and I felt like you know if I dated somebody seriously that I would have to tell them in advance this this kind of story was coming out um and I guess like it opens more opportunities to the kinds of people you date right like you you can date more in the public eye and stuff like that if that's what you want to do um I prefer to keep like my love life a bit more private obviously the with the press there's elements of things that will get out and that you will talk about but um I think in terms of dating a bit more privately it does make it more complicated you know um I would describe my love life as tragic at this current moment in time so you know I can't I'm with you great. there I'm with you there I <laughs> Before um, we started this interview, I was regaling Chess with all my interesting uh, dating moments over the past while. So yeah, I feel you. Oh yeah, no, I like downloaded Hinge recently because I, I, someone told me they now add voice notes onto like their profiles. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I was like, oh, do you know what? If I see a really funny voice note, this would make a great TikTok. So I downloaded Hinge for the purposes of TikTok. So I'm sorry if there's any guys that I've now recorded your profile for purposes of TikTok. Um, I remember sitting there thinking, oh God, if I was using this for dating, I think I'd actually really struggle because the, like, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's like a, when, when you're such an independent, I see on TikTok, independent women take less from men because they're so used to doing from them something, everything themselves. And I'm trying to like, you know, not look past red flags in, men and things like that when it comes to it and I'm sitting there on like hinge going what on earth is happening like what <laughs> options are there really like what can I do and then every time I like if I match somebody it'd be like well you're not real you're a catfish or if you're really who you say you are you should follow me on Instagram or whatever and it's like oh like come on like if I was going to be a catfish I'd be someone far more interesting right <laughs> like it's so yeah I think um right now I'm gonna take being single for all of its really good qualities and leave it at that and see what happens I love that um so looking to the future what are your goals professionally and personally oh so professionally I you know I um I never wanted to be like an influencer leaving the show like Love Island I think majority of people assume that you go in to be an influencer um it doesn't really suit my personality yes I love clothes and I love makeup and I would never influence or do an ad for something that I really don't believe in or I don't like but 
you know, I, I would love to get into like more TV presenting, um, more like Stacey Dooley vibes or like that kind of thing, like investigative journalism, like something where I get to use like my education and things that I'm really passionate about to to do something else, to do my profession. I think that's one thing that I felt like was missing in my civil service career is that I didn't always get to do things that I was passionate about, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, I think I think professionally, I'd love to do TV presenting um, or like go work more hands-on in a women's charity, like in a women's organization and have like um, a bit more of a role there. Um, personally, I think, you know, my goal, at least for 2022, is just to be happy um, to like, yeah. And I think that's, you know, it's such a cliche goal, but actually when you think about it, it's one of the hardest ones to achieve. Um so, you know, I, you know, January was one of the best months of my life. Um, so, you know, I like I started the new year feeling really low because I just stopped seeing someone that I was like infatuated with. So I was like, oh, this is crap. Like going to the new year, it's all going to be rubbish. And then literally day like by the second, third of January, things were just taking off. And like, you know, I got really involved with all these projects that are going to come out eventually. And um, you know, they're all things that I really believe in. So January was like a massive like bang in like my career for me. So I'm definitely on the right path to just to just being happy. Love, Love it. that for you. Yes, jinx, my <laughs> girl. Yeah, that, you know, taking it step by step, nothing happens if you're not happy. So you're starting at the right point. I love that. And there's a question that we always ask, Alex. Do you want to ask it? Do I? Okay, so the question we ask everyone is, what does being a feminist mean to you? Okay, um, so being a feminist means to me um, that, you know, you can do anything that you want to do. Um, and you shouldn't let people tell you that because of their personal beliefs, it's not what you should do. You know, um, I've done a lot of different things. You know, people tell me as a feminist, you can't have done beauty pageants. As a feminist, you can't have gone lo- gone on Love Island. Well, actually, as a feminist, I can have a professional career and do both. Um, so that to me is exactly what a feminist is, taking charge of your own life, taking charge of the options that are available to you and making something completely for yourself out of those. Yes, yes. And that's, I think that's what we're trying to change here by asking everybody that question is, you know, and I say this a lot of the time, it's not the hairy uh, uh, underarms and the um, the burning the bras. It's really about um, letting everybody be themselves and be free to be themselves. And every time someone answers that qu- question, it just evokes that freedom that we are looking for and we're looking to project to the world. So thank you. No worries. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. It's been a fantastic conversation and we look forward to continue following you. And I hope to see you on my TV presenting one day. <laughs> I'll, be, <laughs> I'll be watching I'm sure out. you will. As if people haven't seen me on TV enough as it is, but you know. <laughs> hey, no. hey, never too much. Never get enough of you. <laughs> never too much. No. Absolutely not. But thank you for doing so much for women and for speaking out and for taking the hard path because it's really turning out to be absolutely really helpful and amazing. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Bye.
The song of this episode is chosen by Sharon and it's a song she loves to put on when, quote, she is in a feminist mood. Uh, it's called Like a Girl by Lizzo and you can find it in our Big Vag Energy playlist on Spotify. And if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. Leave a review, share it with anyone you think might like it or learn from it, and make sure to also follow us on socials at the Big Badge Energy Pod and email us with any ideas or feedback at the Big Badge Energy Podcast at gmail.com. <laughs>